the Anesthesia Podcast. Good evening, good evening. Thank you very much for joining us. Absolute pleasure to uh, be hosting this uh, this live video chat with uh, two absolutely outstanding uh, authors, researchers, anesthetists, and people. Uh, my name is Kareem. Uh, I'm going to be the host for this evening, or, or morning, or afternoon, or middle of the night, depending on where you are right now and, uh, and how you're listening to us. Joining me tonight is uh, Professor Tim Cook, uh, who I'm sure many people are aware and familiar with, with Tim and his, uh, his track record in the last year in particular on COVID. He's a professor um, uh, of uh, anesthesia and critical care medicine in uh, Bath. And um, he is also joining us with uh, Amira Krishomovich, who is the, I've got that right, Amira. Yeah. who is uh, the HSRC uh, Research Fellow, NAP7 Research Fellow, and Specialty Trainee. Amira, Tim, welcome. Pleasure to have you both on. Thank, Thank you. Thanks, and thanks for pronouncing my name correctly as well. It was a challenge. It was a challenge. And someone with my surname, I always try hard to get the names just right. We're here to talk about the paper that you have um, published in Anesthesia recently. Uh, and this was looking at the impact of COVID-19 on anesthesia and critical care services in the UK. Now, this was a really, really important paper because it kind of supported what we were all feeling on the ground. It told us how dramatic the impact COVID-19 had on what we were doing in terms of theatre work and critical care services. The impact of COVID-19 on staff, on, uh, on supplies, on stuff, uh, and on space. And I encourage everyone to actually spend some time reading this paper because you'll learn about what we've been through, but also it'll guide us a little bit on what is yet to come. So I want to start off by, by opening with Amira and asking you about, you know, the, the work was coordinated with the NAP7 network coordinators and all NHS hospitals. Um, and, and given the pre pressures of the pandemic, I mean, I think this is quite a remarkable achievement for everyone involved. Whose idea was it to use this network and, and how did you actually go about doing it? Uh, well, actually, I think the idea, the original idea came from Tim, Prof. Tim Cook, uh, but uh, as a collaborative uh, NAP, core, NAP 7 core team, uh, we came up with this uh, idea to conduct the study. And as you might be aware, uh, national audit projects or NAPs have been um, using a local coordinator network to actually um, help um, conduct the NAPs uh, at the, uh, each hospital and help complete the, um, the project. So we decided to use that network to try and um, ascertain the impact of COVID-19 on services. Um, and um, there are about 273 NHS hospitals which um, conduct anesthesia and each one of them has a local coordinator um, um, and in total so we decided um, so I just want to take this opportunity to thank all local coordinators and other clinicians who have um, including you who have contributed uh, to giving us the information and filling out the survey and supporting this evaluation we wouldn't have not been able to do uh, this project without you. Um, as you know, NAP7 was delayed, so we decided to, as part of the planning uh, to restart NAP7, uh, we decided to um, try and determine um, when that would be, when we would reach baseline activity or near normal activity uh, to, in order to restart NAP7. And we also wanted to know the degree of disruption of perioperative services, as you alluded to in your introduction. Um, so back in January um, uh, last year, we sent out a survey to all local coordinators um, and who support the majority supported us um, to go ahead with this project. Um, so we decided to um, track or do conduct three subsequent surveys and it happened to capture the second wave 
Um, so three different times. So round one was October, which corresponds to uh, the before the second lockdown period. And round two, we collected data during uh, early December, and that reflected uh, the period just after the ease of the second lockdown. And just as we saw a gradual rise in uh, patients being admitted with COVID-19. Um, and then the third wave, uh, the third round was uh, in late January. And that was just as the just at the end of the second um, peak of the second wave. Yeah, I mean, there was uh, you had the real benefit of that infrastructure there of the of the network of uh, local coordinators, and That's, I think that that was yeah. really um, useful um, to tap into. Exactly, and we've got to thank uh, previous NAPS um, for for that. And it was really easily accessible. Um, and and the, the Royal College of Anaesthetists administrative team and the HSRC team were really helpful within the study survey period, even though they were also under a lot of pressure with work because of COVID-19. Um, so we were able, they were really helpful in um, actually getting the, uh, for the project going ahead um, with sort of, we, we sent a number of emails trying to uh, remind local coordinators to respond to the surveys. Um, so they were really important. And actually Owen Waite um, is one of the administrators who um, uh, helped with um, completing the study. Mm. I think it's worth emphasizing that, you know, the. So I've got a history of working in the National Audit Project, and um, uh, I kind of consider them almost an act of faith. So we, we now send out requests to every hospital in the UK uh, to provide us with information. And we readily produce a network of uh, hardworking senior clinicians who are willing to provide information. And without those, the National Audit Project, you know, which... Um, you know, a small number of people are associated with us, you know, sort of leading them. Um, uh, you know, without them, there'd be nothing for us to lead. And it really is, you know, you've been involved in COVID intubate, was it intubate COVID, I get confused, um, you know, another massive collaboration. And it's, you know, it's really humbling, actually, uh, to, to see the extent to which people will go the extra mile uh, to provide us with this information. And the information that we asked people to, to gather was not simple. We asked them to count the number of cases they were doing, compare it to previous years, inform us about what was happening uh, in other locations. So it was, it was quite a significant burden to people. And they provided it at a time when they were either very busy or flat out. And particularly in, in uh, for the data for January, people were really flat out. We had to leave it a while to get to 50, I think it was a 51% response rate. Um, but I think, uh, you know, pay tribute to those people who have sent that information in when they were, as pretty much everybody was, flat out. And to provide us with this, um, this series of um, uh, service evaluations, but, you know, pinpoint exactly what's going on and tell the story, which, which I think people know as a narrative, but what perhaps this paper adds is, is, is numerical analysis. So you can say, well, actually, this amount of surgery wasn't happening. And this is what was happening to paediatric anesthesia. And this is what happened in the regions. And we'll obviously come on to that. But, but th wholeheartedly, thank you to everybody who contributed. And to those who tried to but were unable to because they were too busy, I fully understand. Thank you. Yeah, that's really nice. And I think that that's something that we can be really proud of in uh, our culture, in UK anesthesia in particular. Um, and this has been something that's been going on for years. Uh, you know, the contributions for very little in return apart from the desire to help to gather that information to work collaboratively nationally and I think that's something we can be really proud of um, in the UK um, and uh, you, you know uh, just a very quick aside from for for myself the data weren't just you know the local coordinator but actually we needed to use our our data analysts and tap into some of the, the the data that we have within the hospital and use some of their time as well so so it kind of cascades down to a massive number of people that are contributing to collect these data and 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 I think that that that's that says something but all of the all of the data that that was collected what were the headline findings Amira and what do you think the implications 
for clinical practice are from, from what, you, what you reported? So overall, over the second wave, what we've shown is that there was a, a progressive increase in the stress on anaesthetic and surgical services. And primarily that was because there was a, uh, we had to shift our workload to uh, uh, support I, the, I, critical, the um, expansion of critical care services. Mm-hmm. First of all, um, we found there was a problem with uh, restarting or continuing with elective surgery. The main, the greatest sort of barrier was lack of staff and lack of space. Um, And there was a sort of a gradual progression uh, throughout uh, each subsequent survey. And uh, at the peak in January, 90% of the hospitals um, that responded were deemed uh, or said that they were not ready or to continue or they were almost ready to continue with uh, elective surgery. Um, And looking more particular anesthesia staffing levels, um, initially, so during the initial rounds, um, we lost about one in eight staff. um, um, And the majority of that was because they had to be redeployed to uh, intensive care. Um, And that actually worsened at the peak uh, where we're losing one in three staff. Um, so that um, immediately correlates to us not being able to perform surgical, uh, elect- go ahead with elective surgery. Um, and simultaneously, uh, we, um, our data supports that this redeployment in anesthesia staff to critical care saw an increase in uh, the anesthesia workforce um, up to 125% uh, in January. And um, lastly, um, as uh, what our paper really showed was there's an enormous impact on the overall surgical activity. And um, we, uh, by January, we were losing about 50% of surgical uh, cases per day, um, which would be sort of equating to about, if we estimated over a year, we were losing about 2 million uh, cases. Sorry, I've got a fly in front of me um, per year. Um, And looking more specifically at the specific specialties, the greatest impact was observed in paediatric surgery and non-elective cancer uh, operations. Um, And if we look at the data more in depth, um, in the early rounds, we saw that uh, about one in five or 20% of operating theatres were closed. Um, and at, in January, that actually uh, worsened, and we were only operators, so only half of our theatres were uh, operating. Um, and although initially we were able to compensate that by uh, under, undertaking green patients or elective operations in other hospitals, such as independent trusts, um, this was um, more sort of more difficult in January, and that's why our data supports. Um, and finally, I want to say that um, our theatre efficiency or productivity is, has also been affected. We're not performing as much as we did pre-pandemic. So if we were say say we were had four patients in one day pre-COVID, uh, now we're probably sort of um, at the peak of the second wave, we were only doing 75%. So we were only doing three cases. And in January, that went down to two sort of. Um, and it was reflected sort of across the UK. Um, mm. yeah. yeah, so I mean, it, it, there was a massive implication on pretty much everything that we were doing mm. um, uh, and all elements uh, of our perioperative care. But that what was interesting, um, and I'll take this to Tim actually, is that in the first uh, first surge and the first round or two of, of, uh, of the study, um, we were all worried about, you know, the ventilator challenge and, and the supplies and the equipment. We were worried about all that. But what the work here shows is that the biggest bottleneck, the biggest challenge seems to have been staff and space. So can you just talk me through about how you found that out, how you came to those conclusions and what you think that actually represents? And, and as per 2021, you're on mute. The most common <laughs> phrase used in 2021. <laughs> so many people saying, can't you stay there? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think everybody remembers back. And I think it, 
it's very easy to, to actually to forget where we were in, in, in this time, 2020 or March 2020. But um, so we haven't sampled that period of time. But yes, the emphasis then in the first search was we need more kit, we need more ventilators. As it turned out, we need more uh, renal replacement machines. But what we've sampled is we've sampled the period before the autumn lockdown, after the autumn lockdown, when things were, you'd have thought, not too bad. Um, and then we've sampled again in the, in the heat of the second um, surge in, in late January. And what we used was we used um, uh, metrics. So we used a, a red, amber, green um, scalar um, to assess, which was, so there's a, there's a publication in, on the Anesthesia Intensive Care Hub run by the College Association Faculty of Intensive Care and Intensive Care Society. And one of those, um, uh, there are two articles in that, one of which was about restarting surgery and one was about, was about descaling ITUs. And, and so within those, there were two measures, one which was, are you ready to restart surgery? Um, what's the state of your intensive care? What's the state of your theatres? Are theatres still being used uh, for intensive care or your staff being used? And so we had a, a red, um, we're not ready to start any effective elective surgery orange we're near, or amber, we're nearly ready to start, and then green, we're, we're good to go. And we had separate scales for um, staff, space, uh, systems, and stuff, or equipment. And um, throughout our three periods of survey, um, staff and space were the headline acts. Um, and actually, so in October, um, things were a little bit rough. Uh, maybe 10% of departments were struggling for staff. Um, and then um, in the second period in, in early December, that increased to about 25% of places basically couldn't do elective work um, because of staff. And then in, um, in January, overall, 60% um, of hospitals were not fit to do, they were self-declared as not fit to undertake elective work. Um, and that included about 55% um, in st staff and 50% um, space. We'll come back to the implications of that a bit later. And then if you take, uh, I'll, I'll perhaps talk about regional a bit later, and you can ask me that about a bit later. But in terms of, um, uh, we also um, used a scalar to say, intensive care, so you um, operating normally, expanded but coping, expanded but not coping, yeah. in a state where you need to be thinking about transfer or actually transferring. And we, we, we said that if, if they were, thinking about doing external transfers or mutual aid as it's now called, um, that, that the units were not um, in a place, you know, those organisations were not in a place to do um, uh, to do elective work. And it's worth emphasising that I think Amir misspoke. So the, the anaesthetists increased um, uh, the intensive care work um, force by 225%. So, 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 so by 125%, to 225%, so more than doubled it. Um, but in terms of, the, so what proportion of, 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 of intensive cares were effectively managing, um, we only did this in the second and third round. Second round, it was probably about 60% uh, were managing um, and it was down to about 30% in the second stage. People were just overwhelmed. And when you dive down into the regional data, then that tells um, another story. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to just, whilst we're here, talk a little bit about um, the mutual aid admissions. Now, you reported that December to January, so in a very short space of time, there were 900 mutual aid admissions in that time. And I, I was wondering if you could just talk me through a little bit about uh, what you mean by that and what conclusions you can actually draw from that sort of number and that scale. Yeah, so in days gone by, BC before COVID, um, there were um, what were called non-clinical transfers, and non-clinical transfer is a is a transfer from one hospital to another hospital of a similar size because the first hospital was overwhelmed. Was not over, I'm not going to use the word overwhelmed at this stage. Um, was uh, had had too much demand for capacity, and therefore was was seeking help from a nearby neighbour, and ICNAR collects that data. And we, so that's the Intensive Care National Audit Research Centre collects that data. And we were able to look at the previous year. So before the pandemic hit in the same two months, um, uh, December and January, there were 54 such transfers. 
And those used to be considered to be a bad thing. So if they happened, they would have to be approved by senior management and there'd usually be a discussion between the chief executives of both trusts as to why they'd happened, why one trust had effectively fallen over and not been able to manage its demand. Um, one of the major, um, the key developments between stage, uh, um, surge one and surge two of this pandemic was the establishment of adult transfer services for critically ill patients. And I think it's, um, it's another uh, group of people and organisations which I pay tribute to because the, the second surge hit different locations, so different regions, but also different hospitals within regions. Um, and that's the nature of a pandemic that spreads locally at different times. So a hospital in, in um, <clears throat> I come from the southwest, so Taunton might be particularly busy at one time while Bath was relatively quiet. And we were, uh, we were able on a daily basis um, to transfer patients from, okay, from, from places that were, um, had too many patients uh, to, patient, to, to hospitals that could cope. And what actually happened was it wasn't transferring patients from hospitals that were slightly overcooked to, to ones that were really, really quiet. It was transferring patients in many cases from hospitals that actually were managing and where clinical care would have been compromised to hospitals who were also operating at twice their normal capacity but were less busy and therefore the sort of heat in the system was spread um the whole country was hot but the heat was was spread as evenly as possible rather than having some places um i'm aware that i'm talking to quite a lot of people rather than having places some places on fire and some places um, just relatively mild so perhaps that's the best choice of language but um but the point remains that trying to trying to even out the degree of stress within the system and we're probably not going to talk about nightingales a great deal but i think that the nightingale hospitals um, um provide space they don't and they provide some stuff they don't provide staff and and i think it's a tribute to the effectiveness of the um, collaboration between intensive care units and to the service provided by the transfer systems that the, that the Nightingales didn't need to be open because had they needed to be open, staff from those hospitals that were being transferred within those hospitals would have needed to go to the Nightingales and that would have diluted the quality of care both at the, um, probably both at the Nightingales and at the, um, the, the, the hospitals that were, were, were transferring to. So I think the fact they didn't stay open I used to kind of think, why are the Nightingales there? I now actually understand the need to build them, but I think it's 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 a sign of success of those secondary systems that led to um, them not needing to be open. So just coming back to that, 54 patients who were transferred from one hospital to a similar hospital in 2019 to 20, December, December to January, and 1,600 patients, 1,624 patients who were transferred in that way uh, that's excluding those patients who say were transferred to a to a, a, a to a higher care, say to ECMO or, or somewhere, um, and um, that's a measure of the of the heat in the system. So um, most hospitals were coping if they'd increased their ITU uh, to double the size, doubled their number of staff, um, but sixteen hundred patients. Remember, at the start of two thousand and twenty, we had roughly three thousand ITU beds. So in all, there were two and a half thousand, roughly four thousand. So in all, there were there were two and a half thousand transfers, and that's almost equivalent to every patient in every IT bed being transferred somewhere. So it was hot, very hot. And and you know um, what I see, and my reading here is that the implications and the impact on our system was just phenomenal, as we know. But on the converse we were super responsive uh the clinicians on the ground uh device systems worked collaboratively to try and address this um and and the other thing to bear in mind is it's not just looking for a hospital that is not as hot as you as you put it tim um it's actually how we communicated and collaborated to 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 have this heat map across across the uk um, to protect the patients and to protect as much as we can the services that we're meant to be providing. Um, so I think that that despite the, the the horrendous implications and impact, 
there is something positive to show that we are actually uh, uh, we have some intrinsic resilience, maybe not necessarily systemic resilience, but intrinsic resilience. And, and if I might say, just, just to pick up on that, so there are these um, loose, became more formal, formal networks between intensive care. So, yeah. so within each region and indeed sub-region, there are networks. Um, so each senior clinician and senior nurse in, in each um, hospital will contribute to a, to a network. Um, and these networks really worked on a day-to-day -day basis, um, managing flow of patients within regions and sometimes across regions. So, so you know, yes. transfers from Yorkshire down to Torbay, et cetera. Mm. Uh, for, for those that, uh, that, are, that are not from the UK, that's really from the top of the UK down, almost down to the bottom. Well, almost the top, definitely down to the bottom of the UK. Um, and um, So for our Australian listeners, that's basically from one town to the next. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but... but but the, 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 it really was a huge strength of the national health service that we have, that people were able to, to provide as best they could the same quality of care to the, to the patient where whichever hospital they came in to as a critically ill patient, um, wherever they went. And this, I think it's an important finding, both from ICNARC and also from this study, um, but certainly in the second surge, this was at the consequence of really turning off surgery, turning the, the surgical tap off almost to a, well, a dribble at best. Um, well, I have you here and we've touched upon regional variation. So let's not beat around the bush and dive right in. Did you see much regional variation? And if so, why do you think there was that regional variation? Tim? So, um, I think there's regional variation because different regions were hot at different at different times, and we sampled at three different times, and they were, um, uh, you know, they were they, they, they were each at different stages of their pandemic, um, of their surges. Um, but we did see marked uh, variation. So, looking, for instance, at space um, in surge three, we had one region happened to be the East Midlands, where that, where every hospital that returned a, a return was red and then we had Yorkshire and Humber where it was um, slightly less than 10%. So there was regional variation. Um, and if we look at staff, uh, although more were red in, um, in phase three, that did range from about 20% down to um, 100%. And so there's a couple of things there. Firstly, there may be variation in demand within those different regions, but also there may be variation in capacity. So for instance, in London, there are 10 beds, roughly about 10 or 11 beds per 100,000 population critical care beds. Um, in the Southwest and, East and the Eastern region, there are about six. So broadly speaking, half, a little bit over half. So our ability to, um, so when, when someone says there are this number of patients per 100,000 in ITU, in London and, and some other regions which are better perfused, there may be a better capacity or capability is the term I prefer to use uh, to cope with that surge than in other regions. So you shouldn't just look at the number of patients, say in critical care, to look at the extent to which an area is stressed. You also need to look at the, um, at the capability or, the, or, the, or as it happens, the bed capacity, but that would be similar for the staff capacity. So, so regions with relatively low numbers of cases might've been relatively equally stressed and that we've got some soft data to suggest that that um that for instance the southwest was not dissimilarly stressed than, than london um but the other the other point about variability is isis is that we think that those hospitals that were most stressed probably didn't send us returns so going back to those those um transfers we we asked how many patients have been transferred out and how many patients have been transferred in and we had 900 patients who've been transferred in and only 600 patients who've been transferred out um, and given that for every transfer there's a as it were someone who sends the patient and someone who receives the patient the fact that we had more recipients suggests that we were sampling from hospitals who going back to that point were less hot than those ones who were who were very hot so Whatever our results are, the reality is that the system, that the, that the situation was probably slightly worse. 
And then the last thing to say about the um, about the regional variation is that um, you know uh, this study was reported in um, the Independent, and the headline included the fact that this was evidence that the um, that the system was overwhelmed. And I think in the paper we said almost overwhelmed or something something with a slight caveat to it. And I think it's a it's a really difficult and challenging question to consider. But certainly in in we have um, our sort of heat maps that show that some regions um, in the second surge um, they didn't have the capacity to do the work in any of the hospitals that sent information, and probably there were hospitals that were too busy to send information, and one can only speculate, and I'm not going to do more, more than say that, as to whether, um, you know, what is the definition? If you're almost overwhelmed as a country and one region is um, worse than another region, and within that region there are hospitals that are, that are the worst in that region, at what point do you move from being almost overwhelmed to very nearly overwhelmed to actually overwhelmed? So everybody is working incredibly hard and I think the flexibility um, that people um, undertook at all levels of the health system was remarkable during both surges. Um, but, but it's really important to learn from what we've experienced. And I think this data provides some, some um, the, the, the paper, the process provides some data which can enable us to, to think through what we need to do to reduce the likelihood of of being very nearly overwhelmed or whatever um, uh, for the next wave or the next pandemic, which will inevitably happen, or indeed for the provision or for the return to, to elective surgery. Yeah, thanks for that, Tim. And that was a, that was a really um, both broad and detailed look at, at the issues about regional variation. Um, I want to take a moment to delve a little bit deeper into the mechanics of the study itself. Uh, and Amira, I'm just wondering, you know, uh, myself, it was a real challenge for me to find the time to do much um, uh, outside of the clinical workload. And I'm sure that, that there are many people who are in a much more difficult position. What were the problems that you had in getting hospitals and clinicians to, to provide the data that we really needed? Um, as yeah, I mean, absolutely right. As you can, as we already mentioned, we did have a decrease in response rate in this, each subsequent survey. So in round one, we had, we had a response rate of sixty five percent, and that reduced to a fifty one percent response rate in January. And um, we already touched on it that that probably reflects directly on the pressures across hospitals. So if you're a local coordinator, as you say, if you're with uh, burdened with extra workload or intensity of the workload or, or being redeployed to intensive care, you're not gonna have that time to respond to the survey. Um, and perhaps as a result of that also, um, as Tim has also said, it, it, uh, he's has already mentioned that our results perhaps underestimate the true extent of um, the, the impact of COVID uh, on our services. Um, in particular, um, the, the survey was very detailed and had a lot of questions and it did take a long time to complete it. Uh, as Kareem, I know you already mentioned that. And I've also helped my local coordinator, the Royal United Hospital in Bath, to help collect data. And sometimes it took us about three weeks to actually liaise with uh, the administrator, sort of uh, surgical administrative staff, liaise with a critical care team, clinical director, to uh, ask, to get the information that we required. Um, so actually, we did ask a lot from our local coordinators um, um, uh, about this information. So um, that was, so I think so from some of the, questions that were a bit difficult. We did have a poorer response rate for certain questions, um, especially, for example, um, the type of activity. So if we're looking at a subset of uh, surgical activity, um, for some local coordinators, it was difficult to ascertain that information. Um, yeah. Um, and I, I actually, I'm wondering about, you know, some of the data that we collected 
you did something really clever, and and I wanted to just highlight this to 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 um, uh, our viewers, our listeners. You did something by giving us the flexibility to say how confident we were about the results that we were reporting. Uh, and you said, I'm confident and th that these results are accurate to within 10%, uh, within 50%, or they were the best guess, something along those lines. Um, how did you actually use that, that confidence that we had in the results reporting? And did that confidence change between um, uh, the first, second, and third waves? Because I would imagine that our confidence probably got lower with the, with the veracity of the data that we were providing you with? That's a very good question. Um, so for certain, just to sort of explain to viewers, for some certain questions, so it would be specifically at looking at uh, specific surgical activity, including pediatric, uh, comparing pediatric activity or cancer surgery compared to previous year. Um, and the, um, also um, the amount of, um, the number of operations performed in 24 hour period. For those type of questions, we did try and ascertain how accurate the uh, clinician thought the data that they provided gave us. So it was, as you said, uh, we asked whether they thought it was accurate data or within a marginal error, error of 10% or more than 10%. So what I did, I compared uh, the data, including all of the data included, so including um, even with a, a marginal error of more than 10%. Uh, and then compared it to just looking at accurate data and uh, with a and also those results with a marginal error of less than 10%. And what I found that even in each subsequent survey, there wasn't a diff there was a very, very small difference. There was not statistically significant difference between the results. Um, so we decided not to publish um, um, that uh, the other set of data essentially because there was not um, there's not significant. But I, I, but that made I us, would... as you say, made us very confident in our results. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love that. And I would encourage um, uh, uh, future researchers who are conducting surveys like this to consider um, uh, giving that confidence in the accuracy of your data when people are reporting. I think that's a really, really great idea. I want to take a longer view now um, uh, as, as we uh, are coming to the end of this discussion. Uh, and uh, I, want to, I want to gather what your thoughts are on the longer term impact of the reduced activity. So I'll start with you, um, Amira, the longer term impact and then what we can actually learn from the data reported here. Um, yes, yeah, so I just want to highlight that um, what our survey um, uh, showed was that um, we estimated that uh, at the peak of the surge, so in January, we were losing mm -hmm. about um, 10,000 uh, surgical cases per day. So if we estimate that, we it would equate to about 2 million uh, surgical cases lost in a year. Um, and what that, the longer impact would, um, I think foremost would impact patients and patient care. And secondly, I think uh, there will be a huge significant impact on staff and how we manage to deal with this work, with this backlog. Uh, going back on more on the patient uh, aspect, um, we know that we haven't um, reached our base, even now, I don't think we are at a baseline activity to pre-COVID. So we've got a huge backlog already um, of cases that we've lost within this last year, um, on top of already pre-existing waiting lists and obviously daily accumulation of that. So your patients are not undergoing elective hip or knee surgeries. Um, so I think we're sort of estimating now the waiting list could be about four to seven million. Um, and uh, with regards to staff, um, I think there's a long impact on, on, on us. I include myself in this as well and, and every uh, sort of all anesthesia, critical care staff and theatre staff and um, personnel. They've been central in the response of the, to the pandemic um, and we've uh, had to carry quite significant burden, whether it's physical, psychological, and we really need to be uh, utilizing us um, with how we're going to move forward um, and how we're going to recover from this um, pandemic. I don't know whether Tim has anything to add to that. Tim. 
Yeah, a couple of things. Um, I agree with all that Amira said. Um, it, it's, it's worth emphasizing. So uh, I think one of the things that the, that the surveys have done is kind of shown the pinch points, the, the stress points within the system. And so for instance, um, in the third wave, about 10% of emergency surgery was lost. That's pretty devastating. About 40% of cancer operations were lost, uh, but two thirds of non-elective um, or non-cancer elective surgery and two thirds of pediatric surgery were lost. And in some regions, there was as little as 10% of uh, pediatric normal pediatric surgery or non-cancer elective surgery. So virtually nothing. Um, and we're now looking at, at a waiting list of 5 million. So there are, there are a couple of points picking up on one of the things Amira said. So we've seen this massive redeployment of anesthesia staff to ITU. We will all have seen it in our hospitals, but a third of, a third, a third of anesthetic staff weren't available. Um, and most of those that were available were probably doing emergencies in, at the peak. And it means that not just anesthesia, that was, anesthesia, you know, so that was doctors, that was in anesthesia staff uh, and, and anesthesia associates, but it, pro it almost certainly means that the, 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 the psychological stress, so the, the overwork, the exhaustion, the lack of holidays, um, the, the, you know, the moral burden that's been put on people, et cetera, all those things likely to apply to anesthesia just as much as, as to intensive care. And I think it's easy not, not to remember that. And, this, and I think this kind of puts a, puts a pin in the map, as it were, and says, look, guys, anesthesia is affected just as much. And there's been other writings about the challenges of, of just moving from pandemic phase two to let's crack on with as much surgery as we can. And, you know, we need to think of new ways to get to, to, to chat to, to address the massive surgical backlog. Just this morning, um, the College of Surgeons was very prominent in the, in the press talking about new surgical hubs as a, as a, new, as a new method to, um, uh, to move elective surgery away from uh, busy um, emergency hospitals and try and separate patients uh, uh, who might be set at risk of getting infection in those hospitals to surgical hubs. Now, I wholeheartedly support that, um, but what we've shown is that while space is important, um, the key issue is staff. And it, you, you know, you, you've, got to, you've got to steal from Peter to pay Paul or whatever the phrase is. Um, you can't have staff um, doing two jobs in two different locations. So if you, if you increase surgical capacity by 30% by creating these massive hubs, the staff have to come from somewhere. And obviously, um, intensive care as an emergency uh, specialty has to continue. There is likely to be an increase overall in in intensive care provision throughout the country that I believe has already been announced. Um, and um, uh, there is going to need to be a significant expansion in uh, intensive care and anesthesia staff, because it really helps the very simple process of breaking down any service into staff, space, systems and stuff, enables you to analyze things very quickly. It's obviously very easy to remember for S's. Um, but creating surgical hubs will not work unless it's supported by those services, by stuff, but most importantly, by staff, not just anesthetists, but by, um, by anesthetists and other people that work in theatre. Um, and the other thing I think perhaps that, the, that, that it tells us, so, so at the peak, um, theatres were working most often, those theatres that were working, so say 50% of theatres were working, most often they were working at about 50% of normal capacity. And we still have um, uh, COVID precautions um, in many hospitals. And there needs to be a really careful thing to work out how we return to efficiency and how we balance risk mitigation against efficiency. Um, because this year we won't get back to 100% efficiency because the processes that we have to keep staff and patients safe mean we're somewhat slower. And that it just means we simply won't get back to it. So that has to be thought through very carefully. Um, so Christina Pagel, who I'm a big fan of, um, talks about being overwhelmed in three different phases. So she talks about, there's a nice article in The Guardian um, where she talks about the NHS being overwhelmed. She said the first phase is, is us working much harder to maintain the quality of care that we normally provide to all patients. And then the second phase is when we're, we're working much harder but we, we have to drop our standards um, to, uh, but we can still provide them to all, 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 
all those people that need it. And then the third phase is that despite working as hard as we can, we can't even provide care to all, all people that need it. And this study um, gives an illustration of the extent to which, um, you know, which of those levels that we were overwhelmed. And as a nation, it's pretty clear that we were overwhelmed to level two. We, we were not able to provide um, normal surgical services um, to, a, to, to a significant proportion of the population. And those delays will have had impact on some, on some patients. And we can only speculate on the quality of care that was delivered um, across intensive care. And so no doubt it might provide us with information on that time. And that is in spite of everybody working so incredibly hard. So I think that, that going forward, it does inform us. There will be, there may or may not be surges that affect um, uh, intensive care in the same way as, it, as the first and second surge did, but there will be surges whether they're, so winter, winter surge, probably from other respiratory illnesses and probably surges that affect hospital admissions, we're probably already seeing it, um, that third surge. So we need to work out how to deal with that. We need to work, know where the stress points are and it's given us some information and there will be pandemics in the future. So it provides some information um, which might help us plan how we can be, uh, I don't like the term resilient, but organisationally prepared um, for what may come in the future. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Um, and I want to I want to draw this to a close by asking you both the same question, uh, and I, I'd like a really focused answer, despite the fact that it'll be really hard to give a focused answer. Uh, but for the next surge, shall we ring fence surgical services, which includes staff, space, supplies? and critical care services to be um, uh, you know, moved to the nightingales rather than kept within hospital environments that are providing surgical services. So how much should we be ring-fencing heroptive services? Amir, I'll start with you. I think that's um, a quite a difficult question. And I think... Um, it all depends on um, the critical points, as well as the, um, the staffing and space. So I think, as Tim has said, you know, there's, it's fine if we have a nine-year uh, hospital that will be, be able to provide critical care services, but if we don't have enough staff um, and um, enough staff to be able to provide uh, to be divided. Um, as, we, as it stands, we don't have enough, um, uh, if we had another second wave or third wave that's the same size as the second wave, then we wouldn't be able to, we don't have that flexibility in our system, in our workforce flexibility to expand and divide ourselves into two separate entities. So I think until we have reached that point uh, in flexibility in workforce, I don't think we would be able to do it uh, or as well as we would want to, okay. would like to. Uh, and Tim? Um, yeah, I, I think, I think, so I think we can focus on staff and space. Um, and I, I, I support the surgical hubs. I think there's long been a need to separate um, elective and emergency surgery. I think that's been self-evident in a lot of hospitals uh, that it hasn't worked. And so we, I think we will in the future need to separate um, elective and emergency surgery by default. That will need an expansion in the uh, nursing, um, AHP and medical workforces. Uh, that will need investment. Um, I think having that extra space and those uh, separate locations will decrease uh, the risk of harm coming to patients um, as a result of getting infections in, in the next wave of pandemic. Um, and we saw that, 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 that transferring work to private hospitals by and large worked extremely well in the first wave and, and, and perhaps in the autumn as well. But, but, was, but there comes a point at which it is not practical. So if you're, if you're overwhelmed by admissions or, or rather, I'm gonna sorry, try and avoid the word overwhelmed, if you have um, a, a demand that exceeds capacity and it's a difference between carrying on with doing 
a hernia surgery or hand surgery or, or hip and knee surgery, which I'm not underestimating their importance for people's well-being and health. But if it's a choice between doing that and saving lives by, by moving more, more staff to um, intensive care or, or physically expanding intensive care, then the solution is obvious. And, and I think within that, we need a plan whereby we can, we, we can, we can, we can, we can spread the load in terms of the staff that need to come to intensive care. So it's not just transfer of all, of all anaesthetists from theatre into ITU, but it's, it's taking those skills that many people have on the wards, um, many of the physicians and surgeons who might be otherwise um, uh, employed, and, and taking those skills and using those in intensive care. So we, need, we have work to do in terms of creating um, kind of pluripotent potential um, phys um, physicians in the broadest sense, um, and um, AHPs and nursing staff, so that people can be more flexible in what they do uh, according to the need, which is a hugely complicated thing to do. Um, but that is the challenge if we want to, to have a greater flexibility and support surgical services to a greater extent than we were able to in the first and second surges. Thanks, Tim. So what's clear is that we, uh, you both kind of agree with me, that we cannot really put hard borders and, and ring fence services when we are being uh, receiving pressure in our healthcare system from outside those services, and we've got to be a little bit flexible. And, and I think that um, uh, the, for me, one of the key things that, that has been reinforced from this really important paper that you published is the value of our staff. And uh, staff are the only resource whose value actually increases with time and uh, they're the only investment that we make that you can confidently say that with time, you will get the value back from them. And I think that's something that, that is going to be a continuous theme uh, that you've highlighted here, you've highlighted previously. And I think we're going to see more discussions about this moving forward. So with that, uh, I'll draw this, this really, really good discussion to a close. Um, I'd love to talk to you both for hours about this and about this paper. Um, uh, uh, and the paper is rich with, with information. The supplementary files, I would encourage everyone to actually look at the supplementary files online because there's a lot there that, um, that, that would educate us and inform us about what's actually happened. And I want to thank both of you for your time tonight, and I thank all of our listeners for joining in. Uh, and uh, until the next uh, uh, Cook uh, Kershomovich paper, uh, I leave you uh, uh, to enjoy the rest of your evenings. So thank you very much, both. Good evening. Thank you. Thanks. Bye now. The Anesthesia Podcast. <laughs>